The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In 1997, the power players of Washington, D.C. gathered for the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner. As usual, the staff at the New Republic had prime real estate in a huge gala hall. But this year, 24-year-old Stephen Glass sat amongst them. Earlier that year, he had published a controversial article titled Spring Breakdown. The piece frames the Conservative Political Action Conference as a hotbed for immoral and criminal activity, despite the attendees being the future of Republican leadership. The provocative piece made Glass a rising star among the journalists. Though for the conservative politicians at the nearby tables, he was more of a rising headache. Now, a fellow reporter from the Wall Street Journal took the stage and called Glass out directly. He joked, How long did it take you to make up that one, Stephen? <laughs> Stephen Glass simply smiled and waved to his admirers. Soon enough, the spotlight moved off him toward higher-profile figures. Glass and the accusation faded to the back of everyone's minds, no one giving it a second thought. Glass, after all, had made up quite a bit in his last year of writing. Because that's what he did. He spiced up life to keep the masses entertained rather than informed and he got away with it. But this moment of glory was fleeting. Soon, his house of cards would come tumbling down. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we charted the origins of Stephen Glass, a young journalist who implanted titillating fiction into his non-fiction articles to stand out from the crowd and accelerate his rise to the top. Glass weaponized his psychological insecurity to win the sympathy and trust of his colleagues and readers. This week, in part two, we will trace the creation of Stephen Glass's final, fateful story for the New Republic and meet the team of rival journalists who finally pierce Glass's wall of deception. We will also examine Glass's own testimony in the wake of his downfall and see how he struggled to deal with the aftermath of his lies. It would take Stephen Glass many years to sort through his lies and find his own version of the truth. In an interview with 60 Minutes conducted long after his downfall, Glass admitted, My life was one very long process of lying and lying again. As we explored last week, this was likely the result of a psychological adaptation outlined by psychologist Dr. Tali Sharat and other researchers at University College London. The more someone lies, especially out of self-interest, the less the brain neurologically registers it as lying. At one level, Glass knew he was lying, but there was a neurophysical response cycle that actually perpetuated the behavior. It wasn't a rational justification to keep digging deeper into this hole, but an unconscious mechanism. By 1998, 25-year-old Glass was deeply entangled in this psychological spiral. He was juggling work at the New Republic and various freelance assignments with a heavy course load at Georgetown Law School. He had no time to devote to considering the moral weight of his actions. All he could focus on was his next deadline. Under his previous New Republic editor Michael Kelly and current one Chuck Lane, Glass followed the same process. He said, I would tell a story, and there would be fact A, which maybe was true, and then there would be fact B, which was sort of partially true and partially fabricated, and then there would be fact C, which was more fabricated and almost not true, and there would be fact D, which was a complete whopper and totally not true. In other words, Glass never began his stories with a total intent to fabricate. He reconstructed the truth into lies. It was a natural progression. But the writing of the story itself was only the beginning. Glass explained, Beyond that, I knew how the system worked. I made it so that my stories could get through fact-checking. I invented fake notes. I later would invent a series of voice mailboxes and business cards. I invented newsletters. I invented a website. For every lie I told in the New Republic, there was a series of lies behind that lie. If you were to ask Glass, this was all done out of a desire to be loved. He had struggled since childhood to be accepted by his parents. The Glass family were strivers and never satisfied. 
Even as a superstar journalist, writing for several high-profile publications, Stephen knew he wasn't living up to his parents' expectations. David Hozier, who holds a Master's of Science in Psychology, addressed the condition in his book on childhood trauma. Hozier pointed to the process of differentiation, when a young adult is supposed to detach from their parents and form their own identity. He cautioned that if a young adult remained dependent on their parents, physically, financially, emotionally, or a combination of such attachments, they can enter a state of arrested development that is difficult to move on from. This can be maintained from both ends, with parents who depend on their children, either needing them or their approval, or with children who do everything in their life to remain with the parents or foster continuing approval. When Stephen Glass integrated into the New Republic, he simply substituted his co-workers and editors for his parents, and the cycle continued. In a retrospective article for the New Republic in 2014, Hannah Rosen, one of the closest friends Glass had at the magazine, recalled that Steve had a way of inspiring loyalty, not jealousy, in his fellow young writers, which was remarkable given how spectacularly successful he'd been in such a short time. Glass himself felt this connection between his newsroom colleagues and superiors he wanted to impress. It fueled his desire to write the most momentous stories possible, even if it required folding in his own fictions. Whether it was in the New Republic bullpen or the gala floor of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, Glass wanted to be the spectacle. That was his shield. And up until 1998, it appeared to be impenetrable. But editor Chuck Lane did not see Glass in the same way everyone else did, especially not the way his forebear Michael Kelly had. In fact, Lane's entire approach to his position as editor was the opposite of Kelly's. Kelly was an older, seasoned journalist with no time for a flashy wunderkind. Behind closed doors, the young reporters at the Republic disliked this new atmosphere. Glass certainly participated in these conversations and poked fun at Lane's seriousness with Rosen and his other close friend, John Chait. Yet, in the beginning of his time behind the editor nameplate, Lane's seriousness kept him from seeing the truth of Glass's machinations. He didn't have time to indulge in office gossip. He was running a paper. He didn't know it yet, but this kid, in his early 20s, was about to define the rest of Lane's journalistic career. It started as it always did in this industry, with a pitch. With the typical bashful look on his face, 25-year-old Stephen Glass stepped into Chuck Lane's office with a fresh idea. Lately, Glass had been trying to break into the tech writing space. He wanted to attend the National Assembly of Computer Hackers in early May of 1998. He had sniffed out a lead on a certain teenage hacker enmeshed in a blackmail lawsuit with the Technology Corporation. Lane sent him to the conference with permission. The result was the article Hack Heaven, scheduled to be published in the May 1998 edition of The New Republic. 
with hack heaven, glass through all standards of truth, out the window. He bypassed facts A through C, those with some real factual content, and went straight to fact D, otherwise known as complete fiction. Like all of Stephen Glass's best work, it began with a character. Sitting in a conference room at the Bethesda Hyatt Hotel, site of the 1998 National Assembly of Hackers. I'll let Glass himself take it from here. Ian Restall, a 15-year-old computer hacker who looks like an even more adolescent version of Bill Gates, is throwing a tantrum. I want more money. I want a Miata. I want a trip to Disney World. I want X-Men comic book number one. I want a lifetime subscription to Playboy and throw in Penthouse. Across the table, executives from a California software firm called Duped Micronics are listening and trying ever so delicately to oblige. What's more amazing, though, is how Ian got Duke's attention by breaking into its databases. He posted every employee's salary on the company's website, alongside more than a dozen pictures of naked women. After weeks of trying futilely to figure out how Ian cracked the security program, the company came to Ian's Bethesda, Maryland home to hire him. With this opening set piece, Glass described how hackers across the country were performing similar raids on corporate websites. These hackers exposed weak spots and then blackmailed CEOs to hire them for their security expertise in patching the holes. Glass quoted a police officer named Jim Gort, who ran a multi-state task force dedicated to bringing down hackers. Gort described a potential piece of legislation he called the Uniform Computer Security Act that would criminalize such dealings between hackers and corporations. Glass's sweeping piece eventually tied back into Restel and the National Assembly of Hackers, which he labeled an emergent lobbying group for cyber criminals. The piece was remarkably alarmist for something completely ungrounded from reality. So when Hack Heaven entered the New Republic fact-checking chain, Glass had to work overtime to cover his tracks. This time, he even went as far as building a website for Juked Micronics, his imagined technology company. His fabrications had officially entered the 21st century, and it was enough to bypass the 20th century standards of the magazine. Lane approved the article for publishing in the May 1998 issue. Glass didn't know it yet, but this would be the last published article of his career. For now, he wiped the metaphorical sweat off his brow, swallowed his guilt, and returned to the endless pile of law schoolwork and freelance assignments on his desk. But across the country in San Francisco, someone else was paying attention to the facts. Adam Pennenberg was a reporter for Forbes Online Component, then called Forbes Digital Tool. He logged onto the internet to check out the latest from the Wunderkind in Washington. His mouth fell open as he scrolled through Hack Heaven. 
he couldn't believe that he had never heard of Ian Restall, or the National Assembly of Hackers, or just about anything Glass had written about in Hack Heaven. With every line, more and more red flags sprouted. As Glass fell asleep half a continent away, Penenberg's night of investigation had only just begun. When we return, the Forbes Digital Tool Team reaches out to Chuck Lane with their findings. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Despite being in airy San Francisco, the 1998 Forbes Digital Tool offices were just as cramped and focused as any Washington, D.C. newsroom. The difference is laid in the object of focus. Here, reporters like Adam Pennenberg took aim at the rise of Silicon Valley and the companies that would define the 21st century. Unlike 25-year-old Stephen Glass, Pennenberg didn't see this new world as an opportunity to obfuscate. He was here to enlighten. In a later interview with writer Den Baranda, Pennenberg mentioned that print writers never tired of constantly reminding online writers of their inferiority when compared to them. So when Pennenberg stumbled upon Glass's sensational scoop on the hacker Ian Restall and company duped Micronics, jealousy was the first thing to flare. How did one of those print elitists, who wasn't even keyed into the Silicon Valley scene, manage to uncover all of this before Pennenberg could. Pennenberg went over the article with a fine-toothed comb and took his suspicions to his editor, Kambiz Faruha, who agreed he might be onto something. First, they opened a search for duped Micronics. Strangely enough, there was no real record of this business's existence, not even from the California Franchise Tax Board. A fuse now lit, Pennenberg kept digging. He couldn't find any police officer in California or Nevada that had ever heard of the Center for Interstate Online Investigations, the multi-tiered organization that Glass covered in Hack Heaven. There was no proposed piece of legislation called the Uniform Computer Security Act. Pennenberg sent feelers out through his network, asking real hackers about the so-called National Assembly that Glass claimed occurred in the Bethesda Hyatt just a few weeks ago. No, Pennenberg learned. There definitely was not a mainstream meetup for a group of online, semi-legal vigilantes and rebels, especially not at a Hyatt hotel. The National Assembly was not real. And neither, Pennenberg assumed, was Ian Restall, duped Micronics, or just about anything featured in Hack Heaven. Pennenberg and Faruha were amazed. Either Glass had really allowed himself to be duped, or, well, 
They couldn't even bring themselves to make such a treacherous accusation against a successful writer. It didn't seem fair. They needed to give him a chance to speak for himself. Out of respect, Pennenberg and Faruha reached out to New Republic editor Chuck Lane on Thursday, May 7th, and laid bare their suspicions that Hack Heaven contained false reporting. Lane didn't jump to conclusions. He gave Glass the benefit of the doubt and told him to collect his list of sources. Lane needed to make some calls. By the end of the day, two things occurred. Lane received strange emails back from both Duped Micronics CEO George Sims and teenage hacker Ian Restall. Both refused to speak further with Lane. Secondly, Glass himself pushed back against the inquiry, telling his editor, You're not backing me up. I really feel hurt. You know, Chuck, I just feel really attacked. And you're my editor, and you should be backing me up. This was Glass's first attempt at appeal. Somewhere, deep in his mind, he had been waiting for the moment when Lane would stumble across something incriminating, just as Kelly had in the midst of editing Glass's earlier piece on the CPAC conference. In that relationship, Glass had worked to foster what science writer Maria Konnikova called an empathetic rapport, or bond. Konnikova specified that this arises from something called egocentric bonding. When we look at other people, our perception of them is built on our conception of ourselves. Therefore, we inherently want to trust others because we want them to trust us too. Despite his seriousness, Lane was still human. He wanted to trust the young man. To cite Konnikova again, the true con artist doesn't force us to do anything. He makes us complicit in our own undoing. We believe because we want to, not because anyone made us. Our need to believe, to embrace things that explain our world, is as pervasive as it is strong. And with that psychology at work in his own mind, Lane continued to trust Glass. But they needed to make a united front against Pennenberg and Faruha. There was a conference call scheduled for the next morning. Forbes Digital wanted to go over their findings with Glass himself. Early on Friday, May 8th, Lane and Glass shut themselves in the editor's office and waited for the call from the opposite coast. Glass waited, pen and paper in hand, prepared to fight back any accusations on the way. He tried to keep a smile on his face for Lane, but the atmosphere was tense. Faruha wasted no time, telling the New Republic duo, We called some of the numbers you gave us, we tried emailing people and we have our emails returned to us. Three of the email addresses that we used came back saying no address or the account was closed. Glass spoke up over Lane. Who are these people? Because I've emailed them. Pennenberg and Faruha told him they were specifically unable to get into contact with anyone at Duped Micronics. Lane piped up. 
He spoke with George Sims, the CEO of Juked, briefly the night before, though he admitted the tech manager quickly hung up on him. Faruha shifted focus to the Juked website. It was shoddy and unprofessional. Faruha and Pennenberg zeroed in on the fact that it was hosted on an AOL server, meaning only AOL users could access the site in the first place. Why would an ambitious tech company limit itself like this? There was also the issue of the strange message on the site's one and only page, seemingly from Sims himself, calling out the New Republic's reporting for misrepresenting their financial arrangement with the young hacker Ian Restall. All in all, it seemed like a bit of a joke. Glass grew flushed. Faruha seemed almost apologetic on the other line. Pennenberg told Glass it was quite difficult to cover hackers. They made it out like Glass had been set up, just careless in his reporting, not completely fraudulent. Lane eyed Glass suspiciously across his desk. The young writer wasn't breaking, but Lane's trust in him was. When the conference call ended, Lane had a request. He wanted to see the Bethesda Hyatt for himself. For once, Glass had no counter prepared. He had to acquiesce. Glass and Lane walked into the hotel. Lane was a seasoned reporter. He had covered wars and famines. He knew a liar when he saw one. He watched Glass's face for tell-tale micro-expressions as he pointed around the hotel lobby, identifying different locations from his article. He spoke in an assured tone, but Lane could tell by the look on his face. The young man was faltering. Out front, Lane waved over a few building employees and asked about the National Assembly of Hackers. These employees didn't recall it. When Lane fed them the date of the supposed conference, the whammy arrived. The conference space in the hotel wasn't even open that day. Glass was shaking in his proverbial boots. He kept backpedaling and told Lane, all I know is they let me into the building. I don't understand what is going on here, but I was here was a long ride back to the DC offices. Glass was behind the wheel. Lane was quiet as they started off. He only had one thing to say. If there's anything you need to tell me, tell me now. Glass denied it. He denied and denied and denied until finally he broke. He admitted to Lane that he didn't go to the conference. But then Glass swung right back around to lying. He just couldn't help himself. He insisted he had indeed spoken with every party mentioned in the story and they had described the event to him. That must have been how he was duped. He became contrite. He became old office Stephen Glass, a beaten down puppy dog. He told Lane, if it will help you to say I made it up, I will. 
but Lane was firm. All he wanted was the truth. Glass began to cry. Lane made him pull over the car. He would drive from here on out. Glass sputtered out nervous explanations, but never the full story. Instead, he made another play at Lane's empathy. He was overworked. His parents wanted him to be a lawyer, not a writer. But Glass didn't want his schoolwork to take away from the New Republic. He just wanted to seem productive. He just wanted to impress them. Glass's scattered pleading continued until they arrived back at the New Republic offices. Lane picked up the previous issue of the New Republic that contained a story by Glass. He flipped through the pages and found it. Monica Sells, about a memorabilia convention that sold Monica Lewinsky-themed items. He flat out asked Glass if he had constructed any details in this piece too. Completely trapped, Glass returned to defense. He denied any wrongdoing. He had been tricked with Hack Heaven, but he wasn't a liar. He wasn't. That wasn't enough for Lane. But because of Glass's reputation in the newsroom, he didn't feel like he could fire him outright. Instead, Lane suspended Glass for two years and opened up an interior investigation. As soon as Lane and Glass parted ways, the young con artist and fast-thinking writer went into emergency mode. He called up his closest allies, including Hannah Rosen and former editor Michael Kelly. Rosen was flabbergasted when she heard her friend's version of events. The details twisted to make Lane seem like he was firing Glass for no reason. Glass went even further with Kelly, driving to his former mentor's house to make his case against Lane. He needed to mobilize forces in his support, but the foundation was already gone. He had Rosen and Kelly's sympathy, but now the facts would speak for themselves. While Glass tried to control the damage, Lane was still at the New Republic offices, going through pages of Glass's old stories, contemplating just how deep this all went. That's when he got the call from a senior editor regarding this mess. They were trying to coordinate a truce with Forbes, who wanted to publish their own findings before the New Republic could conduct a full investigation. In the midst of this desperate conversation, the New Republic senior editor mentioned that Glass's younger brother lived in Palo Alto, with the same phone extension that Lane had dialed to reach George Sims, the CEO of the mysterious Duked Micronics. Lane thought back to his strange, brief conversation with Sims over the phone. All the pieces came together. He had talked to Michael Glass. And Stephen Glass had arranged it all. That was the last straw for Chuck Lane. He knew what Glass had done. And he knew the lengths Glass had gone to in order to maintain the con. As Lane later told 60 Minutes, Glass wanted desperately to save his ass at the expense of everything. 
he would have destroyed the magazine in the process. And now, this 25-year-old con artist nearly had. Lane couldn't wait any longer. He needed to act. When we return, we'll detail the final showdown between Lane and Glass. Now back to the story. Chuck Lane arrived in the lobby of the New Republic at 9.25am on Saturday, May 10th, 1998. As it was the weekend, he had to check in with the security officer downstairs. As he signed in, he noticed another name already on the ledger. Stephen Glass had arrived three minutes earlier. Lane rushed upstairs, only to find Glass already at his computer, hard at work doing something. Lane forced him off the computer, worried he was deleting some sort of evidence. The enraged editor then flat out accused Glass of having his brother in Palo Alto fake the phone call with the CEO of Juked Micronics. Panicked, Glass told Lane he wasn't deleting anything. He took Lane's suspension seriously. He was just packing up his desk before he went to visit his parents. He asked Lane to drive with him to the airport so he could explain the situation further. Lane refused. He wanted Glass out. Now. Fifteen minutes later, a contrite Glass returned to the office, tail between his legs. He came clean. His brother Michael had pretended to be George Sims. Lane nodded his head. Some amount of relief flooded the editor's mind. The truth was finally coming out. Until, yet again, it didn't. Glass insisted to Chuck that George Sims was definitely real. He just couldn't get in contact with him in time for the fact-check call. Glass got nervous and enlisted his brother to help him. See? It was all a big misunderstanding. He messed up, but... Lane stopped Glass. No more lies. No more talking. He told him to get out of the offices. He wasn't just suspended. He was fired. And just like that, Glass was ejected back into reality. His career as a journalist was over. And so was his career as a con artist. On May 11th, Adam Pennenberg published his findings on the Hack Heaven inconsistencies in Forbes Digital Tool. Soon enough, the New Republic followed up with its own retraction. In the month following Glass's firing, Lane enlisted all of the young writer's former colleagues, including Hannah Rosen, to pore over every one of the articles he published in the New Republic since 1996. They eventually uncovered false statements in 27 of Glass's pieces. These discoveries deeply shocked Glass's old friends. Rosen recalled, I was deeply unsettled, like I'd woken up in the wrong room. Colleague John Chait told Rosen he had dreams about running into Glass in the street. But in truth, Glass was gone with the wind. 
He later admitted that if he saw one of his ex-co-workers in the streets of DC, he would feel physically ill and flee. He couldn't stand to face his old friends or his old life. He had to figure out how to live a new one. Glass was never convicted of any crime, but his broken reputation has never fully recovered. It turned out his parents were right. His destiny wasn't in the newsroom after all. By 2000, 28-year-old Glass graduated from Georgetown Law. He moved to New York City and studied to pass the state bar. He split his time between test prep and writing of a different kind. In 2003, 31-year-old Glass published a fiction novel called The Fabulist. The premise? A young journalist cons his way into a high-paying job at a renowned national magazine, all the while looking to fill the hole in his heart left over from a sad childhood. Hannah Rosen reviewed the book for The New Republic. She found it, and the hundreds of accompanying letters of apology Glass sent out in the book's wake, to be less than genuine. She just couldn't bring herself to trust anything he said. Scathing review from former friend aside, Glass's novel was mostly overshadowed by the 2003 release of the film Shattered Glass, a direct adaptation of Buzz Bissinger's 1998 Vanity Fair profile of Glass after Hack Heaven was exposed as fraudulent. Portrayed by Hayden Christensen, Glass was the clear villain of the movie. The real Glass could never bring himself to watch it. In 2004, Glass's request for a law license was turned down by the state of New York due to his sordid past. So he moved to California to try out a law career on the Pacific coast. As his application was passed all the way up the ladder, eventually reaching the state Supreme Court, Glass managed to find work with a personal injury firm in Beverly Hills, Carpenter, Zuckerman, Rowley. When he first applied to the firm, Glass was fully honest about his past and his own mistakes. At first, Paul Zuckerman couldn't believe Glass thought he actually had a chance. But upon further thought, Zuckerman found himself more and more impressed. The law partner had his own struggles in his past, and he understood how those mistakes helped him form his current identity he decided to give Glass a chance and hired him. For the next 10 years, Glass kept his head down and focused on building a new life with a foundation of authenticity. This is the position Hannah Rosen found the 41-year-old Glass in when she finally reunited with him in 2014. She interviewed her old friend for an anniversary issue of The New Republic. Initially, Rosen was apprehensive. She hadn't taken well to his earlier apologies and found the fabulist self-serving. Yet, the glass she met with near his home in Venice, California, seemed different. He didn't rush his answers to her questions. He took his time to detail things as clearly as he could. This wasn't the 25-year-old she once knew. This 
was a middle-aged man embroiled in a drawn-out state bar hearing with a full-time job as director of special projects at a personal injury law firm. A man with a long-term girlfriend and the hope to turn over a new leaf. Rosen also interviewed Glass's boss, Paul Zuckerman, who told her, When clients come in, Steve helps the firm get them ready for trial. The first thing he does is tell them who he is. He says he worked at a magazine and he lied. He says he got caught, that Hollywood made a movie about it, and that there are many people who dislike me, and rightly so. Zuckerman explained that through this act of contrition, clients come to see how their own honesty will be valuable during their journey through the justice system. Glass makes his confession over and over again every month, and people come to trust him for it. In exchange, he helps them prepare their stories for the judges they will soon face. Rosen asked Glass if he was tempted to spruce up these testimonies a bit to help the clients come across better in their respective courtrooms. Glass denied it, saying he only writes the truth now. He told his old friend, It's not manipulation. It's caring. I don't coach the client. I help them discover their story. Even with this newfound source of goodwill, Glass was once again denied a law license by the state of California in 2014. A 35-page ruling declared that he was still inherently untrustworthy. In 2015, Glass repaid Harper's Magazine the $10,000 they gave him for a phone psychic article, Profits and Losses. He also made promises to repay other outlets for the lies he told in their pages. But Chuck Lane remained unconvinced. He told 60 Minutes, If it was sunny outside and Steve and I were both standing in the sun and Steve came to me and said, It's a sunny day. I would immediately go check in with two other people to make sure it was. Rosen was more forgiving. In her piece for The New Republic, she wrote, It is said we are a nation of second acts, that we fetishize failure, that we love nothing more than a sinner reformed. But perhaps what we lack is patience, because reform is not all that theatrical or even a great story. It is slow, tedious work. Either way, at 47 years of age, Glass continues to work in front of the keyboard today. He types up the stories of his firm's clients and hands them over to the licensed lawyers to do their work. Caught in this purgatory, he only hopes that now, beyond all other concerns, his writing can do some good. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream con artists on Spotify, just open the app and type con artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artist was written by Jack Bentel. I'm Alastair Murden. 